Good afternoon. My name is Jean, and I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Al-Ateen. Hi, Jean. I, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for showing up. <laughs> I'm glad somebody came, and uh, I want to thank the committee so much for asking me to come and share. It's, it's such an honor and privilege, and... I really, I feel like those fellows in that movie Wayne's World. I feel like going, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. <laughs> um, I really do. I really feel like, uh, but I uh, was, have been told by people that have a lot more experience doing this than me that uh, before you get up here, you're supposed to go to the bathroom and pee and pray. <laughs> and so I did that, and I asked my higher power to um, use me to. Um, speak for him and I hope that that happens um, I also want to thank the committee for the absolutely gorgeous um, pottery picture that was in my room I don't know who got that for me but it's really pretty and I love pottery so I'm going to take that home and treasure that and it will always remind me of coming down here to Cartersville um, I really like Cartersville. It uh, reminds me a lot of the little town in Ohio where I grew up. And um, I especially like the fact that the train comes right through town. I just love that. Um, when I was a little girl and I was growing up in an alcoholic home, I used to lie at night and listen to the train, the whistle of the train. Um, and it was always really soothing and comforting to me. I think I always... Um, wanted to be on the train, wherever it was going, I wasn't sure, but um, I think looking back now that a train whistle has always reminded me of my higher power. And, you know, here I am and you've got this train that goes right through town, so um, I've really enjoyed my stay here. Uh, I want to tell you a little story about a lady that, uh, 40-year-old woman who started coming to Al-Anon, she was married to an alcoholic, and um, she started coming to Al-Anon meetings, and uh, after a couple of months, a beautiful thing happened. She started to care about herself again, and she started to work out and exercise and eat right. And, um, she decided she'd go to the doctor for a physical, and so she went, and the doctor examined her, and he said, well, madam, I've, I've just got to hand it to you. He said, for a 40-year-old, you've got the body of a 19-year-old woman. And if I were you, I would go home and congratulate myself on a job well done. And she said, well, thank you. And she decided she'd go home and do just that. So she went home and she took off all of her clothes and she stood in front of the bathroom mirror and she was kind of turning this way and that way and saying, not bad. And her alcoholic husband came up behind her and he said, what do you think you're doing? And she said, I went to the doctor for a physical today, and he said that I have the body of a 19-year-old woman. And her husband said, well, do you say anything about your big, fat, 40-year-old butt? And she said, well, no, actually, your name never entered into the conversation. <laughs> I really love to tell that one. <laughs> Because I've heard my share of Al-Anon jokes, and you know turnabout's fair play. So. <laughs> also, uh, one of the very first things that struck me coming into Al-Anon was the fact that people around the tables were laughing. 
And I hadn't laughed in a long, long time, and I liked the sound of that. And I've, there's another book that says, Make a Joyful Noise Under the Lord, and I believe, for me, that noise is, is laughter. And it is such a blessing to be able to laugh today and to be able to talk around the tables about some of the crazy stuff that we did and, uh, you know, be able to laugh about it. And I think each time we do, we heal a little bit. But uh, when I did this uh, for the first time, I was praying about telling my story, and I had this image of... um, it kind of came to me when I was praying that I, I, I was sitting in the grass and the tall weeds on the side of a, a dirt road, and my higher power came walking by, and he asked me, you know, what are you doing there in the, in the weeds? And I said, I'm afraid. And he said, uh, well, that's okay. And I said, but I don't know where I'm going. And he said, well, come on, you know, come on, get on the road with me, take my hand. He said, I know where I'm going. And uh, so what I'd like to ask you to do is to kind of take my hand and walk along that road with me a little while. And I'll go back a ways um, to the early 50s. I was born in a small town in Ohio, and I have some fellow Ohioans here, and uh, that feels good. it was a little town called Newton Falls, and it was very small town. The only thing it's really known for is that it's the only town in the United States that has the same five digits in its zip code, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and uh, But my dad used to brag that there were more bars in town than there were churches, and there were churches of every denomination. So uh, It was in the industrial area where the steel mills and the automotive factories were, and a lot of blue-collar workers and a lot of people that worked shifts and uh, it wasn't an, at all uncommon for people to walk out of their third shift and go across the street and have breakfast at the bar. And uh, my dad was a steel mill worker. And uh, I, When I came home from the hospital, I, I realized today that I was brought home to a family of ducks. And I learned this in Al-Anon, that if he walks like a duck and he talks like a duck, he's probably a duck. And so although my father never admitted to the day he died that he was an alcoholic, um, I can say that I believe his drinking definitely affected me and I think the rest of my family too. And I had two older half-sisters. They were about 10 and 12 years older than me. And then I had a brother three years older than me. And I think I spent most of my childhood... Uh, kind of wandering around wondering what am, what am I doing in this picture because everybody in my family was really busy. Um, my dad was busy, you know, he worked and he drank. And my mom was busy taking care of everything. And she worked hard too. And my sisters were, by the time I got old enough to, to start remembering things, they were in high school and they were dating and uh, my brother didn't want a little sister hanging around with him. So, you know, I became um, what I've learned in our Al-Anon literature is called the lost child. It's like different members in an alcoholic home take on different roles. And mine was to kind of disappear. Um, in fact, my mother used to say I came out of my room when I was 15. <laughs> but I did. I, I just real I thought, you know, if I don't... Well, I learned real quick what the rules in an alcoholic home were. 
um, you don't talk, you don't trust, and you don't feel. And uh, another rule in my home was you don't need anything. So I learned, you know, to go in my room, and I discovered books and reading, and I discovered a fantasy world, and uh, I escaped into that. And I didn't ask for anything. I was very independent, very self-sufficient from a very early age. Uh, I learned not to talk about my dad's drinking. I learned not to ask questions. Um, you know, even today I have flashback memories of incidents that happened, and it just blows my mind that nobody in my family ever said a word about these things. It was like it. we all had this unspoken agreement that we would not talk about it. But I don't remember anybody actually telling me not to talk about it. It was like we just knew not to talk about it. For example, uh, and this was, you know, years later as my father's disease progressed, um, he ended up hitting two men in with, you know, when he was drinking and driving, and these men were seriously hurt and in the hospital, and my father ended up losing his job and being forced to go to a treatment center. And I remember our family, it was Christmas time, and we all drove to the treatment center to visit Dad. And I look back now and I realize that on that four-hour trip and back, no one ever said, do you think Dad might have a problem with alcohol? I mean, we never mentioned it. And even when we went into the treatment center and they unwrapped the Christmas presents to make sure we hadn't brought cologne or anything like that, no one said a word about alcoholism or drinking. And I mean, we were very good at denial. So that was the don't talk part. The don't trust part, I, I think, you know, that comes from, um, you know, the broken promises and the um, people saying you didn't see what you saw. You know, like uh, when I'd tell my mom about something that my dad had done, um, she'd say, no, no, he didn't. He didn't do that. Oh, you must have been seeing things. And so, you know, not only did I learn not to trust other people, but I learned not to trust my own eyes and ears. I, I learned to doubt myself. It was like I knew that I had seen my dad, for example, you know, I'd be in the back seat and he'd be drunk and driving and he'd be swerving all over the road and I'd be scared out of my wits. But when I'd go home and tell Mom, she said he didn't do that. So I was, learned to doubt myself. And... Um, and then, you know, the don't feel rule um, in my household, that was not only you don't feel your emotions, uh, so, you know, you didn't cry. I mean, if you cried, my God, they'd just, everybody jump on you, and that was an opportunity to dig in a little deeper, you know. So, I mean, you know, I learned not to cry. And, um, but it was also don't, no physical touch, no affection. So I was never tucked into bed or held on anyone's lap or, um, you know, it, it was just one of the ways that alcoholism kind of affected everybody in my family was that everyone was extremely independent. And um, really what it was like was a bunch of roommates that lived in this, happened to live in the same house and would pass in the night. Uh, so, and that would... Those things came back to haunt me later, uh, but 
I escaped into my room. That was how I coped with that whole situation. Now, my sisters, the way that they dealt with that was that as soon as they graduated high school, they got out of Dodge, and they didn't come back. Um, my brother's way was to follow in my father's footsteps. And my brother has been in AA, but today chooses not to be, and that's his journey. Um, and to this day, uh, my family's very splintered. Uh, we might talk, you know, one or two times a year. So I, I always felt a great loss about that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a wonderful feeling to find out when I got into Al-Anon that family wasn't mere biology, that family had a lot to do with um, feelings and a bond that I found in the rooms of Al-Anon. Um, anyway, you know, I, I tried to, I, I got this idea when I was a kid, and I don't know where I, this came from, but I thought that if I was just good enough, and if I worked hard enough, and if I didn't need anything, um, then surely any day, just, just around the corner, things would get better. I don't, it just started as long ago as I can remember, was that feeling that somehow or other I could do something to change the situation in my home. So I was the kid in elementary school that was, um, got really good grades and uh, had lots of friends. And I mean, if you looked at me on the surface, you would think, oh, now there is a well-adjusted little girl, you know. And I learned, what I learned was how to lie and how to put on a front. And I was very good at it. And I, I carried that with me until I got into Al-Anon was that if I looked okay on the outside, then maybe you would never find out just how rotten I felt on the inside. Uh, and what I didn't understand until I got to Al-Anon was what an incredible burden that was to hold that front up at all times. But I, I had gotten very, very good at it. And I also learned how to um, lie to my friends. I, I would tell them things and say things that would lead them to believe that my family was just like theirs, um, you know, that we did the same type of things that they did. Uh, and I made it, I was very careful that nobody would come over and actually find out that it was, that was all a lie too. So um, I, I got good at lying and covering up, and, and uh, I worked real hard. And uh, the thing that was, uh, when I look back now, is that, uh, you know, none of that ever changed anything. In fact, you know, we, I now know that alcoholism is a disease and that it's a progress, progressive disease. But at that time, I did not know why, uh, no matter how hard I tried, not only were things not getting better, but they seemed to get worse as the years went by. And, um, you know, I really thought that there was something I could do about it. Um, when I was about 12 or 13, I had braces on my teeth, and my dad would take me um, every other Saturday. We'd go to the next town over and see, go to the dentist. And um, we'd leave early on a Saturday morning, and I, it was the only time that I'd ever had with my father alone. And I really treasured those times. I really looked forward to just me and him in the car. 
And on Saturday morning, going to the dentist, I think he was probably hung over looking back now, but he seemed like, you know, he was pretty subdued. And um, when I'd go into the dentist, he'd go into the bar across the street and wait for me. And when I would come out, he'd be drunk. And I, every time it happened, every time I thought, this time he's not going to do it. You know, this time we're going to go and we're going to have a nice lunch and it'll just be, you know, my dad and me. And, you know, every time. Um, so I think, you know, I, early on I got into that thinking of, you know, this time it's going to be different. This time it's going to be different. Um, and it wasn't. Um, when I was about, oh gosh, 14, around in there, you know, I started uh, budding out and um, I uh, started noticing that boys were looking at me and I had something they wanted and they were willing to go to any lengths to get it. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I found... Uh, that I really liked that. I really liked that. It was like, for the first time in my life, you know, and of course I didn't know any of this stuff until I did a fourth step, but looking back I know now that for the first, I had felt so powerless as a kid that, you know, it didn't seem like no matter how hard I worked and how good of grades I got or what I did, nothing ever changed in my house. But when I got the attention of these boys, I felt a sense of power. It was very brief, and it was, you know, um, but yet it was a. It filled up that emptiness that I felt inside, that um, that sense of failure that I felt about not being able to fix anything at home, and and so, you know, I didn't realize it, but at that time is when I became um, this. You know, I, I I became addicted to that sense of power. I really liked it. It was really wonderful to have, you know, and as long as I kind of like, you know, played hard to get and whatever, you know, I could um, get that attention that I had so craved. And um, anyway, what happened was is that at an early age, um, I began, and also this was during the hippie era, and I was, you know, really a part of all of that. Um, so, you know, it was that all that thing about if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And, and, and I did that. You know, I mean, I, um, and I was just a kid. But um, I would uh, go to almost any lengths. You know, when I look back on it, I really was not that different from the alcoholic. Uh, right around the time that most alcoholics are finding alcohol and finding out that that's a solution for them, I was finding my substance, and it came in the form of, you know, black leather jacket and the smell of tobacco and a little bit of booze on the breath, you know, and that was my addiction. And, um, and I pursued it, and it gave me that temporary feeling of being okay. Um, anyway, when I graduated from high school, I decided that the problem was, you know, I just needed to get away from my family. If I could just get away from Ohio, that was the problem. And this was the first of many geographical cures. I did my geographical cures, too. So I moved all the way out to San Diego, California to go to college. And I was on my own. Um, 
I worked and put myself through um, school and um, I should I should back up and tell you about the first love of my life who was um, a drummer in a rock band in the Cleveland area and um, you know that was like from the age of about 16 till 21 you know that was my sex drugs rock and roll phase um, and uh, they weren't famous or anything, but they were uh, well known in the area. So they played in clubs like every weekend, and I got to get into the clubs and be the drummer's girlfriend. And um, you know, that was really exciting. And he had that, you know, that aphrodisiac uh, for me was the, you know, the leather jacket and the cigarettes and booze on the breath. <laughs> I found that very attractive. And so, um, you know. <coughs> When I moved out to California, this is kind of, I don't usually tell this, but the band moved out to California with, with me briefly. Um, and that was, uh, that didn't last very long. But anyway, after that ended, that the relationship with the drummer ended, I met my husband, uh, my first husband. And uh, I uh, was telling my daughter, who's now 21, I was telling her about that, that it really puzzled me for a long time. Um, most people, if they grow up in an alcoholic home, they either end up um, becoming an alcoholic or marrying an alcoholic. I mean, that seems to be the trend. And um, I did not marry, my first husband was not an alcoholic. Um, you know, he could drink, uh, and um, he really didn't seem to be bothered by it. But I was reading in the book that they read the uh, Al-Anon Promises out of From Survival to Recovery. Um, and I was reading one of the personal sharings in there. And this lady had written in and, and was, said that she had not married the man that was like her father. She had married the man that was like her mother. <laughs> and that's what I did. I married a man that was a lot like my mother. And my mother... Um, was you know she was affected by my dad's drinking and she was um, you know I, I loved her very much and and I loved my dad very much too and and yet um, she was it was difficult for her to show affection um, I think she had learned to kind of harden herself and. Um, Anyway, you know, I, I think my husband was a lot like that, and I felt that that was comfortable. That was, I was used to that. That was normal. Um, and so we were married. We were together for 14 years, and we had two wonderful kids. Um, they're 17 and 21 now, a boy and a girl. And I'm very, very grateful that, you know, what a gift. Um, but... I didn't have with him the the excitement and the um, sense of power that I had felt before my marriage with especially, you know, being around the rock band and everything. And, and um, So, you know, I think that, that was uh, caused some problems in our marriage. And then, you know, my ex-husband was, well, he was a very good-looking man. And um, I think he felt like, why? you know, just keep all this for one woman, you know, I mean, why not share some of this with, you know, and he did, and, um, and, he, and he ended up leaving me for another younger woman after 14 years. Um, 
I guess I want to tell you, in between my the birth of my daughter and my son, um, kind of a, a bad time. I would say maybe my pre-Alanon bottom. Um, you know, all this time, I think I was still going under the assumption that, you know, somehow I was going to work hard and um, be good and that sooner or later things were going to get better. And, um, you know, so I tried the geographic cures. I mean, we went out to California, then I came back to the East Coast, and, you know, I, we even lived in England for a year, and, um, you know, none of that seemed to work. And, um, I think that, you know, I, I really definitely think that it was self-will. I was def just totally running on self-will. I didn't have any concept of a higher power. Um, and I, uh, I got pregnant, and six months into the pregnancy, I had a miscarriage. And it was far enough along in the um, pregnancy that I had to go through labor and give birth and everything, and I... Um, I'd never had anything like that happen to me up until that point. Um, you know, it, it was like I couldn't seem to control it. It was it was happening, and it, I didn't want it to happen. And there wasn't it was not anything I could do about it. And um, I uh, was in the hospital room. And also, I guess I kept thinking. Um, you know, this is a bad, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, so surely now, when this has happened, you know, my family's kind of rally around, and they're all going to, like, come and see me in the hospital and, um, you know, be supportive, and uh, and that didn't happen. And so I remember being in the hospital room about 4 o'clock in the morning, the night that I'd lost my baby, and... Um, I had this feeling that there was no way I would ever be able to work hard enough. And there was no way I was ever going to be good enough because I was obviously I wasn't good enough or this terrible thing wouldn't have happened to me. And um and and that there was nothing that was ever going to be bad enough that would ever make things better in my family. Um and I um I just didn't want to go on anymore. You know, I really didn't. I I just wished that God had taken me and not the baby. And uh, it was a long... Um, the thing that really got, that got me through that, that helped me to go on at all, was that I had my little girl at home. And, um, and, I, and I wanted to go on for her. And, and I did. Um, but it was a long process to come out of that. And um, I guess the reason I'm telling you this is that um, I've heard alcoholics talk behind the podium about those wee hours of the morning and that feeling of total aloneness and, and loneliness and self-hatred. Um, and I just want the alcoholics to know that some of us Alanons have felt those feelings too in the early hours of the morning where we just didn't want to go on anymore. Um, but I did. And uh, my marriage, you know, ended and um, my husband left me. Okay, so you can imagine, or here I am, you know, I'm like 37 years old and I am not 
uh, a happy camper. I mean, I am, uh, you know, I'm already, and, and I think this is important for alcoholics to understand, is that so many of us that get into a relationship with an alcoholic, I mean, there's something not right already with us before we even meet you. Um, and, and, you know, I... Uh, I think that's really important to understand, at least in my case, you know, is that I had a lot of problems, you know. Um, and I'm, so anyway, two weeks after my husband left me, I um, go to this, um, I think I was searching so desperately for some kind of a spiritual connection at that time, and I was going to these different churches trying to find something that, you know, would help me to feel better. And so I went to this one church, and at the coffee hour, before the service, I see this guy across the room, and um, you know, I mean, really, there was probably about this many people in the room, and it never ceases to amaze me that there were probably some really nice guys in that room that were not alcoholic, but I zeroed in on him, and he zeroed in on me, and we met in the middle of that room like a bead of honey, and they say that sick attracts sick, right? And uh, and that was definitely the case in our our relationship uh, anyway that was the beginning of uh, six years of being with a drinking alcoholic that finally brought me to Al-Anon I used to say active alcoholic but you know really when you think about it most of the alcoholics I've known were not very active <laughs> they were really very inactive <laughs> they were like oh yeah you go do it you know <laughs> so um so he was a drinking alcoholic, and um, the first date we ever went out on, we had a pretty good time, actually. And uh, towards the end of the date, he, he just very casually mentioned to me, Oh, by the way, I might have to go to jail soon. <laughs> and I said, okay, get this, I said, Oh, but we're just getting to know each other. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, Let's face it, a sane person would have gone, warning, warning, but nothing. <laughs> then in the next couple of months, um, he had his car repossessed. He got kicked out of his apartment. He lost his job. He almost went to jail. I mean, he was this close to being, but he somehow finagled his way out of it. And all this time that these things are happening, um, I'm thinking to myself, oh, the poor guy. You know, he's just getting, having such a hard time, and um, he just needs a good woman, you know, somebody like me who will help him and get his life in, together. And um, and also, and this is, you know, see, I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but what I realize now is that when I met that guy, ooh, I got back that sense of power that I had as a kid. Um, he needed me. He wanted me. He needed, he, he would say things like, I don't know what I'd do without you. Oh, God, I just love that, you know. I mean, and, and, I, and it was like that emptiness that I felt inside was being filled up. And, um, you know, I just thought that he needed a, a good woman, and I was going to, and I fell right back into it. I said, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do it good. And certainly any day now, it's going to get better. I just know it. Any day. And so any day now was for six years. Six years of any day now. Surely tomorrow. You know, if I just do, you fill in the blank. 
If I don't do, you fill in the blank. I mean, we've all, you know, it's just amazing to me to sit in the rooms of Al-Anon and hear all of the things that people did and didn't do to try to get the alcoholic to stop drinking. And, you know, I probably did them all and thought up a few others. Um, I will say, though, that um, I'm not... When I first got to Al-Anon, I was really concerned about the fact that maybe I didn't belong there because I have drank alcohol, and I wasn't sure. I thought, well, maybe, you know, you can't go to Al-Anon if you've drank, too. And um, it was a big relief to me when I went to my first convention, and there was a woman got up to tell her story, and she said that, you know, she kind of had a background like mine where, you know, she'd partied a lot and at, at times had tried drinking with the alcoholic. And... Um, she said that I felt like, okay, that's all right then. I'm allowed to come to Al-Anon, you know, even though I've, I have drank alcohol and I have partied and there were times that I did think to myself, well, heck, I'm just going to drink with him. You know, if he's not going to stop, then I'm, I'll just drink with him. But the, I was not very good at it. And I, um, you know, but I tried. I really did try. And my husband says today, he says, you know, well, hey, why don't you just go out and get another six-pack and, you know, have it done with and you can come to the right program. And then, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, who knows. But for whatever reason, you know, and I think about that, but for the grace of God, you know, I, I, I don't have that disease. I don't know why. No way. It was never an obsession with me. It was never, it was like if it was there and other people were drinking, I'd have a drink. But if they didn't, it was certainly wasn't something that I was going to go out of my way to do. And, um, but uh, anyway, I, uh, I just, boy, I worked hard with this fella. And, you know, I was a single mom during this time, too. And um, he ended up living in a, um, an abandoned farmhouse. Okay, uh, it had no running water and no heat. I mean, and I'm talking abandoned. There were gaps in the walls where the the wind would whistle through in the winter time. And and so you know, if you can imagine this, here's me and my kids, and we're all bundled up in our winter coats, and we're sitting on the couch in the living room in the middle of winter, with no heat, no plumbing, and um, it. Like, did it occur to me that there might be something wrong with this? <laughs> no. You know, I'm like uh, thinking to my, you know, I'm just, in my mind, I'm thinking about how am I going to fix it? You know, how am I going to fix it? And, and I did a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, I never looked at it this way. I never realized until um, I got to Al-Anon that every time I enabled him and every time that I did something for that man, that by rights he should have been doing for himself, that I was taking away his dignity. And I never looked at it that way. I thought I was just helping. I was just helping. But I was basically, in essence, I was saying to him, you are not capable of handling things, so therefore I am going to have to step in and do it for you. And, you know, when I look back and I realize how arrogant that was, you know, and also, and you know, this is what really blows my mind is that here I am, a basket case, a nut, and I'm trying to tell him that if he would just be like me, you know, <laughs> if you would just be like me, if you would just drink like me, and if you would just like work, I work, see, um, you know, and and uh, you know, where did I have the right? I don't know. I was just a mess. Uh, and I kept, uh, you know, oh gosh, you, the, we'd fight. 
In fact, it got to the point where I was going to come over. They'd say, now, Mommy, don't fight and don't cry. And isn't that sad? Isn't that something? That my, and I didn't even, you know, because it was the truth. It was like every time we'd be together, that's one of the other things would happen. I, we'd end up in a fight or I'd end up crying and storming out and leaving. Uh, and every time I'd come back the next day because I wanted that, I wanted that power. I wanted that feeling. I was needed. I was wanted. I was important. He couldn't live without me. You know, I, I had to have that. And so, you know, really it was insanity on both sides. Um, his drinking, you know, of course it, it got worse. It didn't get any better. And um, I got worse. Finally, all throughout this, though, I could not see what it was doing to the kids. I couldn't. And I, you know, and I think back about that because I had sworn when I got had children, I said, boy, my family's not going to be anything like when I grew up. You know, I'm not going to have a family like that. I'm never going to treat my kids the way that my parents treated us. And, you know, what ended up happening was that not only was it like that, but it was worse. And um, it's not, you know, I'm not proud of that, but that's the way it was. That's that's how crazy I got. So finally, uh, oh, I should tell you that we did get engaged. Um, this was, he told me later after he got sober that uh, this was a last-ditch attempt to try to keep me hanging on because I was always after him about making a commitment. You know, can you imagine that? It was an alcoholic that wouldn't make a commitment. I mean, really. And um, so I, you know, it was like, just to get me off his back, he gave me his mother's, uh, who, who was deceased, he gave me her engagement ring. Now, I should have known that there was something wrong with this picture because he never got that ring cut down to my size finger. And so what I did was I put masking tape on the back of it like you would for your class boyfriend's class ring in high school. You know, I put masking tape, and I wore that thing for six months with masking tape on the back of it, thinking to myself, you know, now any day he's going to get this thing cut down to my size and, you know, he never did. And um, there finally came one of those Christmases where, um, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of the alcoholics in the room remember these Christmases because you may have been in a blackout, but I think the Alanons remember them. But, um, you know, it was one of those, oh, gosh, you know, I had done, I, well, if we just have a happy Christmas, you know, that was my thinking was, if we just have a happy Christmas, I will get the Christmas tree, I'll decorate it, I'll get all the presents, I'll wrap them, I'll get his presents for his family, you know, I'll cook, I'll, you know, if we can just have a happy Christmas, you know, then this year he will not need to drink so much because it seemed like um, holidays were really the party time. You know, Thanksgiving through after New Year's was a constant drunk. And this year, no different. Um, so he had his son was staying his son was about 13 and my kids were still young and it was one of those horrible scenes that um, you know you might remember it was uh, he was just like knee walking drunk and he was on his hands and knees crawling across the kitchen floor sobbing and he went and put his head in his son's lap and he was saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for this to happen. I won't ever do it again. And, you know, of course, we'd all heard that a million times before. And 
I had this kind of out-of-body experience where for the first time I was able to look at the kids and I saw the looks on their face. And they were all just kind of had this look of horror on their face. And it was like I remembered what it was like when I was a kid. And it was... um, And I realized, you know, my God, I'm doing the same thing to my kids that I said I would never do. And um, so that New Year's Day, I took that taped-up engagement ring and I put it on the kitchen table and I said, uh, not only do I not want to marry you, I don't even want to know you anymore. And... um, you know, that's what alcoholism does to people. It, like, takes love and hope. And it just, in my case anyway, but at that point, all I felt was hate. And um, I just felt dead inside. And I just walked out, and I don't know why. You know, I don't know why that time. After Every other time, I'd come back the next day and said, you know, well, maybe it'll be different this time. And maybe I hit a bottom. I don't know. It was just that time I knew I wasn't coming back. I just couldn't li- I've heard this so many times. I couldn't live like that anymore. Okay, so, you know, I take the kids and I'm back in my house and I'm, um, you know, life's going on and I get this phone call and this fellow says, uh, hey, guess what? Uh, I said, what? He said, I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, (laughs) I was like thrilled that he had called out AA. I was so happy. I was just sure that this was going to, oh, great, the white picket fence is coming. You know, I could just, I could see it. It was like, just any, you know everything's going to be fine now. You know, he's going to stop drinking and all of our troubles are going to be over. And uh, we're going to live happily ever after. And uh, I uh, I didn't really know anything about AA and, I, and I'd and i never heard of Al-Anon at this point, but I, uh, he told me he had to go to these meetings. And so I um, was working in downtown Charlotte at the time, so I would, you know, leave work and rush down to the noon meeting and meet him there. I didn't know you weren't supposed to I wasn't supposed to go to an AA meeting. I, you know, I wanted to check it out. I mean, after all, this man was my responsibility. <laughs> so um, I, that's what I did for, uh, and this was, um, you know, January uh, 93. And um, after I'd gone to some of those AA meetings, uh, finally this man came up to me after one of the meetings and he said, um, you know what, I don't think you belong here. And I just got very offended. I was very offended. I was like, I mean, even though I kind of knew that too, but still, I didn't like anybody telling me that I wasn't allowed to go there. And he said, no, no, he said, but we have a program. It's called Al-Anon. And, and I think you should go to one of those meetings. And um, I, like I said, never heard of Al-Anon, but I thought... Oh, I don't know what I thought. Maybe it was the women's auxiliary or something. I, and I thought, oh, okay, all right, you know, I'll go to Al-Anon. Because, you know, what was ha- really, what I was very upset about these AA meetings 
It was like he was going to AA meetings all the time, and I was seeing less of him after he'd gotten in AA than I was when he was drinking, and I didn't really like that. Um, And plus, another thing that really insulted me was that he was listening to these people in AA where he hadn't, and I had told him those same things, and he was not listening to me, you know. And so I was like, really? That made me very angry at those AA people. Um, I would see, you know what? I, was get, I wasn't getting my power thing, was I? You know, they, it was like he was starting to break away from that. And I didn't like it. So anyway, I looked in the newspaper and I, uh, in the town where I live today, and I found where the Al-Anon meeting was. And I got up all my courage, and I went to this church, and I went down in the basement, and I heard a choir practicing. And... Uh, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, are you going to have to, am I going to have to sing? You know? <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. And I waited around and nobody came. And finally I asked the choir, someone in the choir, if uh, were, this was the Al-Anon meeting. And they said, oh no, they've, they moved a couple months ago. I, you know, and I went, oh okay. And, and I just went home. But I really was in enough pain that I found out the next week where the meeting was held and I went to my first Al-Anon meeting and, and I was telling Philip I, I don't have a date I, you know I love that alcoholics have a sobriety date I don't have a date I, I can't even remember it was late February early March is the best I can pinpoint it I was really in a fog uh, when I went to my first meeting and um, I don't remember anything about that meeting except for two things um, well, we have a saying in our uh, newcomers' welcome. It says that Al-Anon is the safe place and the right place to be. And, and I felt like that. From the minute I walked into my first meeting, I felt safe. I felt uh, people talking out loud about alcoholism. And actually, some of them were laughing, and you know, it just shocked me. It was it was shocking. It was I had spent all my life covering up alcoholism. You know, I never talked about it to anybody. You know, I certainly didn't talk in my family about it, and I didn't talk at work or among my friends about it. I had to put on this front, you see, and pretend like everything was fine. I had spent all my life covering it up. And I went into this room, and people were talking out loud about it. And they, and I realized, that, oh, my gosh, I'm not alone. There's other people that have gone through this. And, and that was just blew my mind. And then the really wonderful thing was that, that at the end of the meeting, they, everybody in there said, uh, keep coming back. And, I, oh, I wanted to come back. I wanted to come back so bad. I felt... Um, like I say, I felt like I was safe in there. It was like the first time that I could let down this disguise and they, people didn't judge me. They, they told me to keep coming back even. And, and then the other thing that probably was the most healing thing for me was that everybody in that room after the meeting came up and gave me a hug. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever felt unconditional love 
You know, I, I told you about starting out young uh, with with the different the the boys and you know that whole period of my life. And I think that all my life I had it all I had it all wrong. But I thought that if you were going to get love or affection, that you had to give something first. You know, that's just how I thought. And uh, when I got to Al-Anon, um, they gave freely, and they didn't ask for anything in return. And I, I really believe today that it was those hugs and the love, the unconditional love of the members of Al-Anon that saved my life. Because what I, what I didn't tell you about was during those years, with, uh, with in the drinking years, um, I tried going to a psychologist. You know, I kept, what's wrong with me? You know, why can't I fix this? What is wrong with me? And, I, and then the psychologist sent me to a psychiatrist. Uh, the psychiatrist wanted to put me, um, you know, send me away for a little while. <laughs> I had suicidal thoughts. Um, you know, I kept wondering, what is wrong with me? Why can't I fix this? I am such a failure. And when I got into Al-Anon, I remember in one of the early meetings, I, I told somebody I thought I was crazy. I thought I was going crazy. I really did. And uh, this lady said to me, she said, uh, Honey, you're not crazy. You've just been affected by the disease of alcoholism. And that was such a relief to me. It was like, okay, you know, we can, I can go to these meetings and, you know, there's hope here. Um, and, and I wanted to get better. I really did. I really wanted to get better because, for one thing, uh, this, this man that I love so much, was he was going to AA meetings and he was getting better and he was starting to grow spiritually. And, and I was not getting better. I was just totally still obsessed on him. And um, finally, after about a year of, of hanging around Al-Anon, you know, not really, um, basically just coming to meetings and listening, but not doing anything that was suggested, um, I had this incident. I'm not even going to go into all the details, but it was just something real simple. And... I found myself screaming and yelling at this guy on the telephone. I mean, once again, I had one of those experiences where I looked down at myself and I realized that I had become this raving lunatic bitch. And I didn't know how that had happened to me. I didn't. It wasn't who I wanted to be. And um, and I, I got so scared by that that I... I decided that maybe I'd better do something, some of these things they were suggesting in the Al-Anon meetings. You know, one of the things I'd heard was get a sponsor. You know, work the steps, don't just read the steps. So I um, was asked to go to one of these uh, Al-Anon weekends for all-female weekends in the mountains, and I was up riding up there with this lady, and... Uh, I kind of hemmed and hawed around. I didn't want to ask her to be my sponsor. I couldn't believe anybody would want to do that. And um, finally she looked at me and she said, are you asking me to be your sponsor? And I, and I said, oh, would you? And she said, well, sure. And, and what happened there, and 
I called her before I came down here because I, I just wanted her to know. Um, you know, she was here last year. Her name's Betty M. And um, I wanted her to know how grateful I was to her that she was there when I got there. I'm so grateful to the members of Al-Anon that keep coming back, that were there when I got there. And um, anyway, we began this journey through the 12 steps. Uh, she said, do you want to get better? And I said, yes. And she said, well, this is how you do it. And it was like, oh, I can do this. You know, I can, you know, we just kind of went through each one at a time. And, and um, we, you know, I know that we don't talk about this in Al-Anon, but we use the big book as well as Al-Anon material to, to go through the steps. And, and that was just incredibly uh, wonderful experience for me and and then she told me right away you know that I had to get involved in service work in fact <laughs> one time when we were at this uh, we have what we call eating meetings where it's like a potluck before the meeting and um, I was standing talking to somebody and she came by me and she said what are you doing just standing there get a rag and start cleaning down the tables and I was like yes ma'am <laughs> and I got a rag and I started cleaning and and that was her the way that we began to get involved in service work. And they, since then, I've had a variety of different jobs in Al-Anon. Um, such an honor and privilege to do every one. You know, I've been the group representative and the district secretary, and for a while I was the area literature coordinator. And right now I'm the uh, uh, treasurer, group treasurer. And and I just want to say that, that we have a book in Al-Anon that says, when I got busy, I got better. And that was definitely true for me, uh, that I needed to feel like there was something I could do where I could feel competent. And um, I, I got so much support and encouragement from the people in Al-Anon every step of the way in doing service work that I, I just highly recommend uh, getting involved in that. It's uh, such an honor to be able to do those things. And there's no level of service work that's any better than any other. I mean, it's all important whether you help put out the books at the beginning of the meeting um, or whether you're the delegate. It, they're all the same. They're all really important and uh, part of being a member of Al-Anon rather than just an attender of Al-Anon. And um, so anyway, I've, I've had the honor and privilege to be able to do that. And I've also had some women ask me to sponsor them. And, uh, you know, wow. Once again, you know, that's the thing where I'm not worthy. I mean, I, I just say, hey, you know, let's just hold hands and we'll go through these steps together. I need to go back through the steps, you know. I need to stay in the steps. Um, I, I think that's what's so wonderful about the steps is that you don't ever have to be finished with them. You know, any time I need to, they're there. And I can go back and say, you know, oh, I forgot. I'm powerless over that, you know, and, and just, you know, go back and just whatever situation I'm going through in life, I can apply the steps, and it is there as a tool um, and, and a way of life, really, a way to live life. Um, the relationship with the alcoholic that brought me to Al-Anon did not live happily ever after. I'm really happy to tell you, though, today he is still sober. He's a good member of AA, um, and, and both of us have gone on to marry other people. 
and and I believe that uh, my higher power and his higher power uh, we, they, he brought us together to learn something really really important and I think for me I can't speak for him but for me I think what I was supposed to learn was surrender I think that I was supposed to learn to sit, sit down that self-will and let a power greater than me guide my life. Um, and I'm going to be forever grateful to that man for introducing me to Al-Anon. And uh, he seems to be with the right person today and uh, God's been good to me and put a good man in my life today sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who's not feeling really good today unfortunately but um, he works a very good AA program and does a lot of work in the prisons and I really respect that and admire him for that and um, it's been a incredible journey and uh, you know when I was talking about being on that road walking along with my higher power um, what I realized is that as I walked down the road uh, there were really there was there were a lot of people on that road up ahead of me were uh, Lois and Ann the co-founders of Al-Anon and then uh, further back from them were uh, all the members of Al-Anon that had gone before me and then I looked around and I realized that there were a worldwide fellowship worldwide all around me and I knew that if I walked along with the members of Al-Anon hand in hand with my higher power that I was never alone and that I was going to be alright and I want to thank you all for asking me and I love you all God bless you